Hello, and welcome to the King Heroes Journey podcast. My name is Beth Martins, and I have the great pleasure of being here with Anna Reitort, or Retort, who is an author, an anthropologist, a linguist, and um, just so you guys know, you probably won't be hearing me say this, but I just lost my YouTube channel, so I'm not there right now to tell you about it, unfortunately. Uh, I love how, Anna, your first response to that was congratulations, so thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it can be a little bit of a like, I, I know I knew it could happen. And, you know, I was preparing myself by having other platforms available, but it's still it still is, you know, a little kick in the gut, I have to say. Yeah, understandably. On the other yeah. hand, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, perhaps, you know, separating from somebody with whom you've had a love hate relationship. <laughs> there you go. And you know, with the, with all of these platforms, I learned not to hate them. I actually learned to be grateful for them, that even mm -hmm. though they work against us in some way, it still has given me a voice that I might not have otherwise had. So as long as they'll have me, then I don't mind. I've learned to not demonize the public institutions as much as I used to and, mm -hmm. and more seeing how they work together. But anyway, we're mm -hmm. here to discuss your work. So I'm going to let people know that as they're just finding us, it'll it'll take a few minutes for them to scramble around and find the right links. But um just wanted to share your bio, which is beautifully written in the first person. I love that because third person biographies can be so impersonal and dispersonal. And we know it's you mm. writing for the most part, right? So when it's in the first person, it's really beautiful. And she says that a human being fiercely and tenderly in love with Lady Earth I am devoted to our human co-evolving bond with her and endlessly exploring what it means to be human. I, by the way, uh, am also an anthropologist just in my undergraduate, I wouldn't call myself an anthropologist right now, but I did a degree in anthropology. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that I felt so called to contact you. She says, as an anthropologist, I, lead it, I lean into traditional cultures and grassroots wisdom. After 10 years in an esoteric cast-denying Indian subculture, I left my academic PhD behind to go barefoot as an aspiring peasant. I'm going to ask you about that in the spirit of regenerative farming, which I personally have a lot of value for now after the last three years. Perhaps this is deep anthropology, experiential rather than theoretical, and in apprenticeship to nature, the greatest teacher whose language our subtle bodies can understand better than our restless minds. Both West and East have made me a poly. Uh, polyglot, which I'm going to have to get you to define, who takes words seriously and delights in silence that nourishes my contemplative spirit. The West gave me an education, but I credit my unlearning to the East. And uh, she lives at the edge of a village in Southeast Asia very early in her morning. The, the roosters are just telling you to get up now. <laughs> yeah. Among the tropical trees and paddy fields and large free-ranging menagerie. Beautiful. Welcome, Anna. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm honored to be invited on your well-established channel. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I want to shout out to Francie, who is in uh, the House of Free Will, which is my private domain association. And she's like, you have to find Anna and uh, interview her. She, she, she says to me, she sounds just like you. <laughs> so. That was really fun. Yeah. And, and just talking about, I love how you've said, you know, you've, you've gone off on the experiential side of anthropology and that's why I didn't pursue it 
because mm -hmm. I, I got as far into the academics and satisfied myself. I got a gold medal in my degree. And, you know, with all of that accomplishment, it was just a disillusionment for me. How right. to put, pushing around ideas, but not actually getting out there. And then I traveled, uh -huh. to, then I traveled to India eight times. So I really got the experience there and dove in much more experientially than academically in any way. So yeah, it's super good. And so you have a book that you published in 2021, which is of course of interest, that year is of interest because then we are one year into the pandemic. And uh, it, interestingly, you've quoted a few of my friends in here, one in particular, um, Dylan Saccaccio. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, do you know him yet, by the way? Nope. Okay, so I know his book. I mean, you know, right, I, right. I know three people through their books, and then hey, doggy. Okay, this doggy is a bit early. Come on, down you go. Sorry about knows, that. He knows Mama's up. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, but uh, my, my little setup is a little bit. Um, come on, I've got lots of wires here, darling. It's not for doggy dogs. Yes, I love you. Yes. Yes, yes, I'll give you a big cuddle later, okay? I'll give you with interest. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just getting set up. I will ask if people are over on Rockfin, which I can't give you the link because you're there, or you are on X, where I am newly streaming over the last month, and uh, and then Fakebook, if you could share out those links, that would be great. I have just, for all appearances, lost my channel, so on uh, YouTube in particular. So any help sharing out would be fantastic. And she's clapping. <laughs> That's great. So today we're going to talk about some aspects of your book, which I have not read all of by any means, but I'm, I'm super enjoying it. It's very deep and very thick and small words. <laughs> so last night I was with my eyes, but uh, there's, there's so much in there breaking down individual words, especially the word God, of course, that's the one that is the elephant in the room that we all use every day, either in a mundane way or in a sacred way. And uh, so when you, you poke some holes in that word, we're going to learn what Krivda is. And it's beautiful. Krivda. 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 You have to roll the R because that's ah. when you really get the, 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 the juice of the ear. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And it, 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 from what I've seen before, it basically means means crooked, crooked truth, crooked justice. And in... yeah, it's 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 a derivative from Pravda, Pravda, which well, you know, we all know about the communist newspaper Pravda, but it's a very ancient concept, which you know, for the Slavs, it's a concept that embodies that combines what are two different concepts in the West. Truth and justice are one thing. And it comes from the pre-Christian past where they had this sort of three, not three tier, but three component uh, cosmology where you had Prav, Nav, and Yav. And Prav was the, let's say, the subtle world of, well, where things are governed by this truth, justice, um, thing. And so you, then they added da to make like, you know, like you have I-T-Y in English or T-I-O-N to turn it into a substantive. And so, you know, I was talking about the book as I was beginning to write it to a Russian friend and he said, huh, do you know Krivda? And I said, no, I don't know that word, but it sounds like 
crooked pravda. <laughs> he said, yes. It's not exactly, I mean, you know, people now, Russian speakers now, they'll say it means lies. But it's much more useful to consider like evil, like evil is a derivative from good. There is no intrinsic sort of starting point in the universe of good and evil. One comes from the other, and it comes from mistakes and distortions introduced into, you know, the primordial uh, good or truth or whatever. So, krivda is, kriv means crooked. You can take a crooked, you know, take a crooked path like the little crooked man in the old nursery rhyme. And so, you know, this is truth made crooked. So a tiny bit of crooked may not be a big problem, but it may be the seed of a big crooked that will come later down the line. So I find it very productive, you know, as a, a, a word that carries a huge charge and which is, that's how I received it. And when I received it, I just knew that was the title of the book. And, you know, even though it's not a good idea to give a foreign name to a new book by an author who's completely unknown, you know, if you want to sell your books, you're not going to do that. But uh, so what? I mean, this is the charge of this book is Krivda. There so, you there yeah. You go. yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And I like how you say that it's uh, it's Krivda or that or that that crooked truth and justice is much more powerful than lies are. And, and you probably don't know this, it's incredible synchronicity that right now I'm doing a series of videos on controlled op. Uh -huh. And that's exactly the nature of that. They can't come out and just lie to you because no one will listen to them. Yeah. So they, they have to come with the crooked truth, some truth, some not truth. Even if it's the smallest amount of not truth, it's usually the most important part where it leaves a certain paradigm in place in your mind you know, political, medical, whatever the nature of that is. And, uh, and much more difficult for people to extricate themselves from that. So yep. anyway, really, really great. So we're going to talk about um, the first, the components of God's religion, and that's God with a, a, a small G. We're going to talk about the difference between the Old and New Testament, which I have actually been down that rabbit hole in the last years in some ways reclaiming my christian past and ancestry that you know was passed down to me and and then trying to find truth and meaning in that book mm. and i have to admit that for the most part it confused me with mm -hmm. with some exceptions you know in the in the teachings of jesus that that made to me a lot more sense and there was resonance and i can use that but uh you know we we've got I was even thinking, I was driving along today and I'm, I'm going like, how could Christians even accept the Old Testament and that version of God after what Jesus taught, right? Like, it's just a total, like I have to say bad words to describe how, what the effect that of that is. Yeah. So we're going to yeah. talk about that. We're going to talk about the battle for the narrative, right? Whoever speaks is, is who controls, who gets a message out and, and is able to actually influence anyone is, is going to be in control. We're going to talk about free will, mind control, egregores also coming very forward in my mind right now. Uh, and this I learned in India as an expression there, why the gods envy us, why they actually want the human incarnation. Why is the human incarnation the most valuable? And then finally, the end game of the long game. So 
might not get through uh, everything that you create or all the ideas that you have, but maybe we'll have to have you on a second time as well. So, so if you like, let's dive in and talk about the word God and the components of a God's religion, wherever you want to start in there. <laughs> well, the word, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a word person. So, you know, just the word God sounds to me so absolutely not yummy for a being that, you know, sh that we should adore and worship. And so, you know, and, you know, it makes sense when people say, oh, my God. Okay. I mean, they're not, it, that does not bring to mind nor to my taste buds the sense of, you know, a, a yummy being out there, a, you know, somebody who is protective, who guides me and things like that. That's just, you know, strictly at a, at a psycho-physiological auditive level. So I've never liked that word. You know, the, in the Romance languages, Dieu, Dio, they sound much more harmonious. So, okay. I mean, I was, I was raised Catholic pretty strictly, but I could never, I found it boring. I found the, you know, all the readings, the bits and pieces, you know, that would, that would be taught and read out at mass and all this. It was also all over the place and internally contradictory. Um, you know, by the age of nine, I, it just said, no, I don't want any more of this. This it doesn't work for me. And then I was told by my father, well, you should continue practicing and going to mass out of discipline. And that completely wrecked it. You know, whatever possibility I might have had of returning to the you know right path, because, you know, they were also teaching me that you had to have personal faith and that you know, your personal faith in the Savior and this, that, and the other was going to save you. Now, if it's a matter of discipline, how does discipline and personal faith work together? Um, you know, faith might give you discipline, but it's not through discipline that you're going to develop faith unless, well, my father had been trained by the Jesuits. So, you know, that's, that's, that's that. Anyway, I never thought that I was going to be working, you know, doing a book on the issue of religion. Uh, I never thought I was going to write another book. Once I'd done my PhD, I thought, you know, that's the end. I'm not writing anymore in my life, you know, apart from emails. <laughs> <clears throat> and then, well, COVID came. And a friend, you know, we were talking about the ancient gods and the Yavis and all that. And, you know, it occurred to me that yeah, but those gods aren't that operational anymore. Now it's the god of money. And this friend said, you have to write a book. And I said, I'm certainly not going to write a book. And I started writing this book the next day. And I wrote every day, you know, until it was done. Because actually, you know, the COVID thing with its senselessness and its imposition Somehow, you know, there are those events that are so large, either it's personal or it's interpersonal, that somehow all the 
puzzle pieces that you've accumulated over your life, they all fall into, into the right pattern. And I could just see, I could just see the kind of, you know, across the arc of historical time, from those ancient, cruelly sacrificial religions, through to what we went through over the past few years, I just felt that there was there was a logical structural uh, coherence, and so then I set about you know determining what that coherence was, and you know bit by bit the threads the threads all fell fell in together, and so the word okay the, you know as I started writing, well I'm going to use all sorts of words in this writing and. This word is not clear to me, and that word is not clear to me. So I list them up front. And, you know, everybody says it's a glossary. No, no. They're listed up front, not because it's a glossary, but because they're all problematic. And we, we take, especially monolingual people, they take the words that they use for granted. You know, unless they start messing around with, you know, um, evil is live written the other way around. I mean, okay, you know, that that doesn't really perhaps that does help, but it's it's not rooted in etymology. And, you know, I do have a scholarly training. So if I'm going to put forward a crazy the, a crazy it's not a theory for me, you know, a crazy uh, argumentation, I have to have at least some grounding in something, you know, something relatively solid, although nothing is solid in terms of what we know as humans, but something that, you know, that makes sense. So I go into etymology, um, you know, to which anyway I was conditioned early on because I had Greek and Latin at school, for which I'm extremely grateful. Uh, and just sorry to interrupt, Anna, Elizabeth is saying there's no sound. Can what? anyone, yeah, I, I can hear you perfectly. So it's not it's not between us. Uh, can anyone else there let me know if you can hear us, please? Over on Rockfin, if you just give me a heads up, yes, we can hear you. And then uh, it might be Elizabeth's system having a hard time there. That, that's what I'm hoping, because I hear you perfectly. You're you're coming through loud and clear. Um, just need a sign from anybody. <laughs> Is anybody out there? Got lots of people on Rockfin. You guys at your keyboard? Uh, sound is good here. Okay, we're going to just go with it. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. Yeah, she'll figure that out. Okay, okay. So, you know, words. Uh, well, I flag, you know, all sorts of problematic words up front. And one of them, of course, is the word God. You know, and I go looking for the etymology of this word. And, um, you know, as opposed to the Romance languages, Dio, Dio, all that. That is affiliated with Deus, which is affiliated with Theos. And and then, you know, um, in I should say tangentially also that there is esoteric etymology that uh, Pierre Sabac has done a phenomenal job, you know, deciphering where you get other um, words that have similar sounds to the God words such that in ancient times, these other meanings, meanings of fright and meanings of shining creatures 
would be automatically subconsciously associated with the official, you know, word for God. You know, when I found that, I thought, wow, you know, this, okay, you know, this is grist to my mill. But anyway, the God word, um, you know, professional etymologists, from what I found online, haven't, you know, found a satisfactory etymology for it. So if we're talking about something that has a very ancient origin, you know, it has a hallowed uh, bedrock uh, meaning for the lives of people. Well, surely the word for the prime entity that is at the core of this phenomenon should have identifi identifiable roots. But no, and uh, interestingly, I found the same discrepancy in, in Russian. But anyway, that's beside the point today. So, so God. I, yeah, so yeah. I was just going to encapsulate that because it was such a wow for me as I was reading it. First of all, no formal etymology for the word God, one of the most common words in our you know, daily language. Uh, and, then, and then the words themselves are like, you, you said the word pun, how, you know, puns have been used and uh, very much uh, part of much more sacred. Like we, we take it as a light thing, as a playful thing right now, but it seems quite embedded in the ancient, uh, you know, and we I actually shout out to Ben Balderson, who is on uh, the Rockfin now and Amanda, by the way, hello. And uh, they have a, a a show called Weaving Spiders. And it's one of the things they do is weaving the words and showing how the puns and the synonyms actually do work together in a, in a meaningful way, in an intended way. So mm -hmm. it's so interesting that God has no history <laughs> and no, and no formal et etymology. And then the words often mean fright, right? Like it's, it's got the fear right in there and, and the light. So those two elements, yeah, and it's a, it's a, and it's a frightening light, you know. It's not the light of the sun. So you know, as you read on in the book, there's the theme of you know real light versus simulated light or unnatural light, which is something that we've you know we we don't have discernment for, especially with all the artificial lights that we use in our lives, and you know we're disconnected from the night sky and all that. Not to mention the sun. Um, and uh, the business of fright, this is, um, it's in Greek. If I recollect correctly, it's daimos, and it is close to daimon. So, you know, we were also a culture that has become uh, literate in our use of language. So we process language mainly visually through the written word. We have lost to a very large extent how the illiterate mind used to generate and use language. Um, you know, that's another thing that I got sensitized to when I was, you know, from my 10 years in, in India with this esoteric grassroots group, you know, mainly illiterates. And language is is a completely different phenomenon for them, whereby you know they can embed, and we're talking grassroots people, we're not talking highly educated people. They can embed many levels of esoteric meaning within a completely exoteric discourse. 
which you know I wouldn't be able to do now. My my literate, you know, even though I've been unlearning in the East for twenty five years, I still wouldn't be able to do that. But at least I can, you know, I can try and decipher. So, um, yeah, this this word, the word God. Well, the other aspect is that uh, we, as Christians or ex-Christians, take it for granted that the Bible is all about God. Well, there is this now increasingly famous um, linguist and translator of Hebrew. Mauro Bellino, who has, I think some of his work is translated into English now, and he has done, a, you know, a, a very painstaking, erudite job of taking every word in the Old Testament and all the words that are translated God, they are in fact Elohim, which does not mean God. In the in the in the Hebrew, it means governors or um, well, basically, you know, figures of 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 authority. Um, King, kings, right? It kings. Well, yeah, I mean, it, yes. Although you know, in ancient times, the meanings that we ascribe to these words may have been much more fluid between themselves. That's why I mean, usually Elohim comes with. It's translated as, you know, three, four, five, six different words. And God is only at the end of that list. And probably added ex post facto, because if we consider that the Elohim were a bunch of ETs, you know, coming to colonize that particular part of the world, well, um, they were just ETs. They were not gods. But then, you know, the further potential history um, of the Hebrew faith would have entailed the sort of sacralization of what would what was the chronicle of you know the relationships between Yahweh and his chosen people, um, and and Yahweh the Elohim, right? being the Elohim who dealt with the people that we know as the chosen people and who, you know, he he entrusted, he ordered his chosen people to go and massacre all the other tribes all around to increase his territory. Isn't that kind of reminiscent of what's happening today and what's been <laughs> happening, you know, for the past 70 plus years? Um, to this so, thing, yes. Yeah, I mean... You know, okay, there's a pattern, there's a pattern. <laughs> so, but, you know, Yahweh was not a god. He was, he was seeking to have dominion over this particular, you know, piece of land. Consequently, having the people of that piece of land serve his purposes, which were violent. And his purposes also included being... Not, I mean, it's, it, you know, it doesn't say that you're supposed to go flat on your face and worship him. What he needs is a certain food, which has to be provided sacrificially. And, you know, that's the eight-year-old male infants that have to be holocausted, holocaust meaning fully burnt, 
um, to satisfy his particular need for whatever uh, food was provided thereby. And, you know, the specifications for how the sacrificial pyre has to be built, it has to be exactly this length, exactly that length, this type of wood, the order in which you have to provide the herbs that are going to be burnt. And, you know, every, the ritual is so is so um, fastidiously laid out that it, it turns it all into a pretty technical operation strictly mm -hmm. to satisfy the physical and potentially... Hello, Pussycat. Ah, oh, okay. And, 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 you know, whatever louche or whatever more subtle requirements uh, he had in terms of, uh, of having all this sacrifice. So, you know, when you put all that together, it's kind of very consistent. And it's much more consistent than the stories were given, you know, by the priests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, again, one of Jesus' teachings was that the important part is not the letter of man's law, which is everything you're talking about, all those little everythings. It's the spirit of the law that is the thing that will serve us. And yet there's so much of this has carried forward where we're, you know, bumping up against these very same Pharisees when they're, you know, trying to get us to even in the Christian religion, they're so they're 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 so letter of the law, even though the, the it just says in black and white there how it's really about the spirit. So that's yeah, I, but it's also, you know, it's also Beth most Christians do not question the text that they are given. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that these texts have been written and rewritten. They say it's the word of God. But God did not take pen and paper to write down his word. And, mm -hmm. you know, word, uh, what we translate as word, coming from logos in Greek, the word, the term word, is only the very last meaning that is ascribed to the word logos. Logos is much more something of an organizing principle. So it's much more, as I understand it, something that puts reality together in a congruent way that gives harmony. So logos is something that organizes. Yeah, it organizes not in terms of, you know, dictatorship. It organizes as the, the, the natural way, the ways in which natural things are going to operate together. This is much more the you know what logos actually conveys. So you know we get there's this fetishism of the word word, and then there's the fetishism of the thing Bible, and people don't realize that the Old Testament was rewritten a bunch of times to make it more spir to spiritualize it oh. versus the actual story of the colonizer Yahweh initially, you know, and then Yahweh became Y-H-W-H and the unpronounceable name. So Yahweh was, the status of Yahweh was changed by the high priests. So, you know, the story was manipulated to turn it into something religious, which 
you know, in its origin, it was not, it was a story of conquest. It was not a story of religion, you know, in the intentions that seemed to be ascribable to the character Yahweh. So, uh, you know, and then the New Testament comes up and it's completely different from the Old Testament and yet it claims to come from this. I mean, uh -huh. and then the Old Testament, okay, it's the words of Jesus. We don't know, Beth. We don't know. You know, um, the four Gospels that were finally accepted and canonized um, and officialized by the Council of Nicaea, well, they threw out a hell of a lot of other uh, Christian, para-Christian, peri-Christian texts. And, um, yeah, and, you know, even those were rewritten. People use the King James Bible or the, you know, there's the Schofield Bible, which is, I haven't gone into that one, but basically, you know, how can one take for, uh, for absolute truth a text that has been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, and we know that history is written by the victors or the would-be victors. I mean, you know, why trust anything in that text? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it's what, what didn't resonate, what I couldn't find truth in, I just have left behind. Mm -hmm. And for the sake of, um, you know, where it did resonate, where I could compare it to my own internal experience and there was a match then then good right then it it becomes something useful but i you know and there's so much debate did that did it actually happen did it is it really history or not is it just an you know a lot of people subscribe subscribe it or subscribe to it being just allegory and it's um you know only talking about the stars which is incredibly consistent with the astrology and the astronomy and it, like and you can't deny that and uh and at the end of the day i just i honestly feel like i have to some some at some level just wash my hands of trying to go down and find truth in it you know it's it's good there's beautiful things if jesus was a real man fantastic i i love him i don't know why i do i there's i have a spiritual connection to that and and i'm curious if you don't mind if i put you right on the spot do you, do you have a, a connection to, a, you know, people talk about if, say, if the word God is so problematic would be like a source or a spiritual presence of some kind that, like, do you have, do you have that in your life? Oh, very much so. Uh, except I don't have a name for it. And that's, you know, that's the main point. I mean, why does a religious institution have to uh, emerge on, on earth and why does for instance that one in its origins have to be so violent it is because as human beings we have a natural intrinsic relationship with the intangible with the subtle I'm not going to say the divine because it's affiliated with the same word Dieu, Div, Deus but it's the subtle it's the universe it's the mysteries. I mean, we say, I have a soul. It's our soul that has us. Our incarnation is an emanation of our soul. So basically, what happened is that these colonizing endeavors needed to sever us 
from what is intrinsically us. Amazing. Okay? Yeah. And to put between us and us, between me and me, between you and you, a priesthood that would be in charge of your soul, that would be punishing your flesh, that would sacrificing that would be sacrificing you. And, you know, along with the god of money that emerged at the same time out in the Babylonian, you know, uh, era, and, uh, you know, probably also earlier than that in Mesopotamia, you know, the, the money lenders, the money, the banksters, they emerged in the shadows of the temples of Mesopotamia. And they became powerful because they instituted debt. And so I see a very clear relationship between debt, monetary, and the need to invent original sin. So that would be spiritually indebted to whoever is going to save us and punish us. Bring it all together. Like that, you know, you make the sin, the religious aspect, the sin that is sort of in the intangible as a category, you make it real through monetary indebtedness. And, you know, it ties in with ancient peoples and modern peoples sense of debt being it's a burden that it taxes my life it it's there's something wrong with being indebted unless you know you're a venture capitalist um there's something there's something not right about being in debt it's so, a false paradigm i i, I have thought about is. this so much yeah, because it's congruent. In, if you if you put it together, the religious sin aspect and the monetary debt aspect, and they were born more or less at the same time, and then they mm -hmm. got perpetuated, you know, and the, the the New Testament church made a big, big, big deal of this original sin, which is not in the Old Testament. They don't have it. They didn't need it. They just had the violence. Mm -hmm. You know, so then the introduction of original sin is a way to start using the krivda in more, less openly violent ways, but with greater efficiency through mind control, right. whereby the violence would be integrated into the human psyche, and the human psyche would do it to itself. Thank you very much. Right. There you go. Uh, sorry, people are trying to find us here. Uh, oh, no, that's all right. Yeah, so uh, to me, the this is all programming, and this is my subject now, working with archetypes, helping people to literally deprogram. We say that word a lot, and there's a certain amount that can be done in the intellectual awareness that, oh, they've put certain words together, and they've rewritten the history, and, and so all of that is good for the higher mind to know. But the structure and the architecture of the programming if it remains in place at, at more, emo especially emotional and spiritual levels, then it continues to express. And to me, that's what the, the debt, you know, the debt culture is foundational on. And if we were to let go of all of our, because, you know, what is, what is the, the lack make you do? It makes you want. And when, when you're wanting, you're afraid not to have. And when you're afraid not to have, 
then you are going to do things that aren't actually a match for you and your values and what you intrinsically mm -hmm. know is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So I fully agree with that, that, that debt is lack and, and it's, it's all intertwined with the economic and the religious view. And it's the creation of poverty as an artificial thing. Right. You know, living in the so-called third world, uh, when people have a plot of land that is sufficient to feed their family um, and they have their culture and, you know, they have had the different components of what makes life worth living and a life that will take you through to a worthy death, they don't understand you know, the concepts of wealth and poverty, such as has been modified in our minds by the religion of the money god. And poverty, you know, when you speak the word poverty now, people immediately assign it to the money aspect and to the material, you know, owning all sorts of stuff aspect. Uh, whereas, in fact, this is, I find it, you know, because of my unlearning in the East, and I've been living amongst grassroots people for 25 people. I look now at what I used to be and at my, you know, friends and acquaintances in the, in the modern world. They don't see how poor they are. And they, they you know, often uh, are a little bit sort of uneasy with me because I'm living amongst all these poor people. And so... You know, there is, there is, you know, there's a hell of a lot that goes into poverty now. And poverty, while it is a physical affliction for the impoverished poor people who've learned that they're poor, they've been made to learn that they're poor by globalization, by monetarization of economies that used to be natural, cultural human economies, where they didn't need money as we understand it or whatever was used for money was completely different. You know, um, David Graeber has written a fantastic book called Debt, uh, which goes into this in absolute, you know, exquisite and very human-minded detail. So, I, you know, I heartily recommend that, to, you know, for, for one's reading list. Um, mm -hmm. But they, so the people of the third world, they are afflicted by the physical poverty. The people of the first world, they're beginning to be afflicted by that poverty because the powers that shouldn't be are introducing that now. They're introducing the third world into the first world. But, you know, the mentality that we still have in the first world, modern, educated people with professions and things like that, we do not understand the sheer depth of our poverty spiritually in terms of our relationship with nature, with the firmament, with the stars, with our own multidimensional nature, we are so, so absolutely poor. It's astonishing. And um, so there is a specific chapter in the book about poverty, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. goes into these different things. And, you know, in particular, uh, the Christian church had a big problem with nature. And nature on a continuity with woman and on a continuity with the pagan faith of the people. You know, by the year 1000, they still had not been able to eradicate all those pesky 
pagan rituals and songs and dances. And uh, and there's there's one of the councils which has been scrubbed from the internet, but there are very good Italian researchers and, you know, they are particularly interested in these things because they've got the Vatican on their doorstep and they have to pay tax to the Vatican. Um, and so, you know, there's a particular researcher who is um, also a uh, an eco-spiritualist, an eco let's say. And he's found this the material concerning this council where it was ordained that all the big trees that the people used to venerate, that they used to go and, you know, visit for all sorts of rituals and solace and what have you, all these big trees should be cut down and uprooted. And all the holy stones had to be thrown away or hidden or buried so that the influence of the devil through the stones and the trees would not no longer touch these holy souls. So that's another thing, you know, proof of the pudding of this, you know, the, 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 what the official religion is after. It's after severing us from our bond with nature. And our bond with nature is both physical and, and, and psychological and spiritual. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, there are so many puzzle pieces that come together when you start looking at, you know, many, many different aspects of what our lives have become and of what they were. It's just mind boggling. It really is. Yeah. No, I remember at one point I just kind of went, oh, nature knows no takeaway, knows no minus. It's only add. And and it's the meaning of takeaway that we impose on it. Like even the, you know, the death and decay of plants or animals or ourselves even, and it, it's all at, there's no, there's no actual takeaway except what we're experiencing in our own hearts and minds. Um, yeah, the Western one, the, the, the is just uh, reflecting what you said that the, the West, we're poor in the West and, and it is starting to change, at least in my community where the value for being on the land and growing your own food, I partnered up or not partnered up, but I started to work for a farm out in, uh, in rural Manitoba here and set myself up a little bit on the land in case we need to get out of the city like crazy. And, you know, it's the most beautiful thing. It's the most valuable thing. It's the most meaningful thing in my life at, at this stage. I mean, I love my work and I love the people I, I do it with, of course, but that's to me where the riches are, even though there's, you know, it's just, it's just like um, fruits of the earth because we put our labor and our time and our, our attention and then we come away with this beautiful harvest mm -hmm. and there's nothing more satisfying and, and bringing that, you know, going to the grocery store, it's not that romantic. <laughs> oh, of course not. But I mean, <laughs> going to the grocery store is much less work, but that's, I mean, you know, what you're referring to is the, is that's the, that's the first level at, at which, you know, Western urban people are feeling the need to reconnect with nature. And it is magical. You put some seeds in soil and you're going to, you know, you're going to have a harvest of rocket. It's, it's magical. And all children need to learn this, you know, from the age of two. But beyond that, when you live in nature, there's, there's the communication. And the, just the, the sheer non-utilitarian relationship between us and beings of nature. You know, we have, we can have fantastic relationships with our domestic pets, but 
you know, there's so much more out there. And especially the trees, there is this, uh, you know, my contemplative self is discovering that these great beings are far, they, they're, they are our kin. I mean, literally, and, you know, both physically and spiritually. And, uh, you know, one, when one opens up to what the different beings of nature convey, because they convey, I mean, they don't hold back. They don't have, you know, they don't need to keep secrets in, in the vaults of the Vatican. It's, it's all there, but it's just a different kind of language. And if we can drop out of the language that sits in the mind and 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 sort of open up to just letting the feeling letting the feeling start to guide this dialogue with beings of nature the rewards are so mind-blowing beth and you know the more this happens with me and the more i know the extent of the theft that the gods, religious gods and secular gods, have operated on us. Mm -hmm. You know, the intrinsic relationship, and it's more than a relationship, it's a mutual belonging of us with nature and with this planet, much maligned as a prison planet. I mean, it's not we who've turned her into a prison, and it is we who can release her from being a prison. First of all, by stopping considering her to be a prison. Mm -hmm. I mean, nice. you know, the glory, the glory of the creativity of this being that we call earth and nature, where does this come from? It was not created in six days by a God who then had to go and, you know, take some R&R &R on the seventh day. Come on. You know, I mean, how, how on earth, how on earth and how in earth did this thing happen? Mm -hmm. I like that you use the word uh, firmament. It it speaks a little bit to some flat earth. Are is that? Uh, do you subscribe to yeah. that? Yeah, I you know I don't subscribe to any particular you know theory about the shape of Earth. Um, plus, what she has many shapes. There's you know there's going to be the physical shape or many physical shapes. And there's going to be uh, the subtle shape of her soul, of her spirit, and her aura. I mean, you know, she's she is one great celestial being in partnership with our souls as other great celestial beings. You know, if you boil it down to that, it simplifies everything radically. And then, oh, I'm not going to fight over, you know, is it is the Earth flat? I like a lot of the arguments of the flat Earth. On the other, on the other hand, you know, in terms of efficiency within, you know, within the cosmos, it seems that most cosmic beings like to be round, spherical. So, you know, I figure, you know. The the the, tr the truth or the material truth is probably you know a mix of all the different theories, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to buy into a rectangular Earth. Okay, that one I'm not going to accept. <laughs> all right, good, good, uh, good boundaries there. So, 
I was going to ask you about something that I was reading about last night in your book and, um, you know, how polarity is a natural part of our, you know, it's considered one of the natural laws that you, you see polarity at, at every level. And you speak very specially about the dark and light polarity and mm-hmm. even to intimate that that is like the original polarity and that there is uh, a natural light and an unnatural light. And, and, and is it true a natural dark and an unnatural dark as well? Do you want to speak about that as? Yes. Natural dark and natural light. Well, they are what we experience in nature and in, you know, uh, the night sky and the day sun. But if you look at how once again, the institutional religions, especially ours, have orchestrated uh, sun as a god. The natural sun out there in the sky has no need and no desire to be a god. It's what it is. It's one great being that incarnated as a star. Like we are great beings that incarnated as humans and Earth is one great being that incarnated as Earth. All of this to do certain things and to evolve and to whatever. Okay, that, that, you know, that's another conversation. Now, when you have the sun, which is turned into a god, and this god, as interpreted, mediated by the high priests, has to do with the organization of a political structure, with the organization of human labor to maximize the profits of the ruling class, then then you're dealing with false light, passing itself off for the real light. You know, simple people may not understand that the God that they are made to worship via the temple, via the rituals, is not the actual sun that their ancestors a thousand two thousand ten thousand years before did not worship but they had a chit chat with the sun once in a while you know in pagan times in ancient pagan times my understanding is and you still get that with indigenous culture they don't have gods they have great spirit They have the spirits of the beings of nature. And humans can go and have conversations with these spirits, resolve problems, and get help, and, and, you know, get rid of disease and things like that. So you've got the remainder of a kind of egalitarian relationship between humans and subtle beings. As opposed to a hierarchical relationship. As opposed, exactly. And to, you know, whereby we are diminished uh, to be little more than our sinful being of flesh, where there is a soul somewhere floating around that has to be saved by a savior who also has to be sacrificed to carry the sins of the whole world, or some other savior, it can be the tech you know, technology is going to save us from the frailty of our terribly awful physical bodies, of which we are thankfully discovering that they are capable of self-healing, provided you don't pile up even more toxicity in and on them. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, this business of false light 
is it's it's quite easy to spot once you're aware of the fact that oh they've superimposed interpretations and um, you know change of paradigm on the natural light to create all sorts of false lights and we now worship the artificial light of you know our LEDs more than we pay attention to the sun. So, you know, they've done a pretty good job of instilling in us a faith, a completely subconscious, unthought through, mindless faith in artificial light. And we fear the sun. It's going to give us cancer. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. You know, I'm a very pale faced uh, Westerner. I've been living in these countries. I don't have skin cancer. I go out, you know, as naked as I possibly can to get all the vitamin D I can and to get that, you know, to get that relationship with uh, with 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 our star. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, okay, no. And the false, uh, the false dark, is it's much more nebulous. I mean, we are acquainted with the real dark, and we've become afraid of it. The more we worship the artificial light, the more we're afraid of the authentic dark, the authentic dark that is the night, the real night, which is now poisoned with, there again, so much artificial light. Um, and the dark night of the soul, and the darkness in caves, where all sorts of um, like contemplative visionary rituals used to be organized in antiquity. People would, you know, they'd go and have their vision quest, not on top of a mountain. They'd go and have it inside a cave. And there were, you know, special um, attendants who were there to make sure that, you know, that you didn't that nothing untoward happened to you, that you didn't, you know, that if you needed some water for hydration, that, you know, they'd be giving you some water. But basically they would not, they would not intrude on the process of whatever was going to happen to you. And, okay, you know, that was what the ancient Greeks did instead of doing ayahuasca. Uh, so it's, um, the natural dark is, it's also the inside of us, of our physically, that we cannot see. But in contemplation, we can go and sort of place our presence inside our physicality and have a sense of how that darkness is actually a carrier of light, a carrier of all sorts of communication, a carrier of all sorts of life processes that, you know, if we knew it all, if we could see it all, we'd, be, we'd go nuts. It's so immense. So the natural dark is something that, you know, it's associated with the feminine and the fearsome feminine. It's the dark where, you know, all the all the bad spirits come out at night and all that kind of thing. Wow. Okay, what can I say? Right, right. Well, it's so interesting because there are so many ways to play with the words dark and light, you know, and, and when you, when you get into the most literal of it, there's, you've got the daytime and the sunshine and you've got the dark and the night and the sun is as apparently gone, but just doing its rounds. 
And and then you've got all the metaphors of that you, you were pointing towards like dark night of the soul and and you know sensory deprivation of the cave where you you don't you know I sleep in a tent actually to to aid my sleep because I live in the city and it's very polluted with the light. And and then also you know when it comes to because I work with archetypes and I help people to awaken through an archetype and to take parts of themselves that are hidden from them usually not hidden mm -hmm. from other people, but hidden from them mm -hmm. into awareness. And, mm -hmm. and you could, you could argue that there's no darkness there. It's just simply what you weren't aware of. And, mm -hmm. and the same with like, when they talk about light, it's really dark is just an absence of light. There's no, there's no actual dark, like, like with, with heat and cold, there's no cold. There's just an absence of heat. When you, begin to yeah. work with it. Yeah, I mean, it's possible to work that way. On the other hand, when you look into the night sky, it is dark. You know, it's that great container. And Darker, actually, but it, you can still see it. <laughs> well, we can, we see that it's dark because there are stars. You know, we see because of the duality, we see because of the contrast. But on the other hand, I mean, this great darkness of everything out there um, is the container for the light. It's, it's a kind of womb, actually. And it's, you know, it's dark inside the womb mm -hmm. where, you know, if, if, if one is going to go and probe with, you know, laser to go and see what's happening inside, the little fellow who's inside is not going to be terribly happy. So there's something, you know, dark, uh, dark, dark is a generative field. And, you know, dark is the place where true alchemy takes place. Nice. You know, yeah. there are so many, the dark is, it's matrix. Matrix, yeah, and that's matrix there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. Um, mother, mother, feminine. But, but and and that's that's my you know that's the subtitle of the book, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is you know, and most people read that subtitle and think, oh, it's the good gods that go you know that vanquish the matrix. No, it's the other way around. The actual matrix, you know, it means womb. That's all it means. It means womb, and it's been made to mean. A perversion of the natural world and that's the meaning that people use and so you know this is my crusade um, for the real meaning you know in Spanish it's la matriz is the womb is you know the womb of a, of a, a human or an animal that's what it is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you know that's another thing that once again you know the power of words and that really is a very powerful one because every time we think of the matrix in the term of the dystopia, we are attacking in our own subconsciousness and our own consciousness the reality of the place from which we've all been born. Mm -hmm. And the reality of, you know, the generative womb of, of anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. I recently found out that, uh, or in, in the past years, that the Hebrew letter Beth means womb and matrix. <laughs> there you are. I know. I know. How fun is that? 
Um, there's a few questions I've missed in the chat here, which I appreciate you guys are there on Facebook. I don't want to just miss you. So um, Bajina is asking about Slavic culture, connection to nature, all and everything were gods. I guess that's just a comment, not a question. And she hugs her trees every that's, day. So. I, I, I mm -hmm. can reassure you uh, the next work I'm working on is uh, is Russia going through i mean you know the west knows nothing about russia the west knows basically falsities about russia uh so there's a hell of a lot there's a very big krivda job you know to be done there so that's what i'm working on Fantastic. including on trying to go into that pagan past of the russians where well there again i mean you know they have the word bog for god which I have, I have, I have an issue with, and um, my preliminary understanding as to the advent of the phenomenon that we call gods—they started to happen in pagan cultures. You know, you've got the high god, the, the the high culture of antiquity, where the Greeks and the Romans had their multiplicity of gods. We've got the high culture and the low culture of India with as many gods as there are human beings. But anyone with familiarity with India will understand that those gods of India, they're not exactly the same kind of gods. And basically in India, you know, if the catalog of gods does not suit you, you invent your own god hmm. or your own goddess. So it's a principle or an archetype or a spirit that you are going to give your energy, your attention, your meditation to, in order to acquire the particular quality of that thing that you have turned into a god, a, a dev or a deva in, in Indian languages. It's not the same thing as what we understand as god. So that's the other big problem with the word god, is that we use it to apply to realities, spiritual realities that are not the same as what we've been um, instilled uh, with the Christian religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very big problem. Exactly. It's a very big problem. And so, you know, the ancient Slavic culture with their bog, bogs, you know, for gods, I understand, and it's quite clear actually from the nature of what they do, they are basically the kind of the halfway humanization or anthropomorphization of forces of nature of great primordial principles, such as the generative womb. I mean, you know, they become the it's a, it's a plural it's a plural goddess, um, and the the prime god Rod basically means it means genus like you know the the genus in in a botanical or mm -hmm. or uh, zoological sense it means lineage it means originator of lineage so it can mean basically the 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 great human originator of all of humanity so it's not an external god that generates humanity it's humanity generated from a primordial human, which nice. does not make it a god, you know, or not make it a god in the Christian sense. 
Right, right. And and even the Bible says I, I created men in my own image. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As if a little credence. As if as if a subtle being out there has an image. They are not incarnate. What kind of an image can they have? You know, I mean, once you, if you start questioning all the words that are used, then, I mean, the whole thing makes no sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because one of the things that I really learned in my anthropology studies is that we are meaning-making machines. Mm -hmm. And those of us who have more meaning in our life, I actually started to make those words meaning and purpose nearly synonymous. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's often the meaning is inherent in there. It's that we give that. Yeah. We, we make it mean that. And, and we can make it m meaningful in all kinds of negative, destructive ways in our life. And we can also make it meaningful in all kinds of helpful, life-supportive, connecting in relationship mm -hmm. ways. And, you know, so at the end of the day, I don't know, I, I just i am starting to give myself permission to to uh, be as I am. <laughs> and um, it was interesting, Matt Unseated is here. He's going to be on a Monday as well. He's talking about the Druids in Ireland, uh, Lessa Christos, which became Jesus Christ because of Romans. Oh, Lessa, pardon me. Lessa means deity. Christos means circle, cross or crisscross. The Druids used the sun for a symbol which changed to the sun and a dead guy on a cross modeled after Caesar Borgia. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You guys. Yeah. Are, there again. I mean, you know, is. crucifying, but that's any, you know, the sun S U N puns with sun S O N. Uh, in English, at least, right? In English. Okay. I mean, you know, it's not going to work in the Romance languages. And, uh, and the other interesting thing that is, is that in German, the sun is feminine. It's D Zona. Mm, interesting. Okay. That's that's a remainder from something, uh, which also, I mean, it tallies with uh, the Japanese sun goddess, the supreme goddess of, the supreme deity of Japan is the sun goddess Amaterasu. So, uh, you know, there are layers and layers and layers of this. Um, and the Druids are, yeah, I mean, inheritors of far more ancient continuities that institutional religions have have severed inside us in order to hijack our natural essence you know why do so many of us now get a sense that they're doing all that they're doing to hijack our souls because they don't have souls okay there is something there's something very special about the human soul yeah to be protected at uh great cost, I think. To be empowered, to be empowered. I mean, our souls have been traumatized with 6,000 years of violence mm -hmm. and of, um, of you know, mind, um, mind perversion and things like that. You know, intrinsically, the soul comes from a place of love and harmony and wants to create more love and harmony, basically. I'm putting it in naive terms, okay? When you torture a small child, that soul is being scared out of its soul wits and it's going to flee. 
Mm -hmm. And it's easy to capture then. It's easy to capture and recycle. Okay. You know, now we're going into the dark esoteric, but basically our souls, we are dissociated because our souls are dissociated from our physicality and they're, and they're traumatized. So it is through the journey that we have in our physicality, with our rationality, with our emotionality, with the different uh, parts, elements of who we are as complex beings, that we need to recapture our souls for ourselves, for the physical selves that are the expressions of these souls, and to re-empower these souls to make them brave. Mm-hmm. And where they bring- have been traumatized and to not fear the traumatization that we don't need anymore. We've mm-hmm. gone through that. We need to overcome that phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they broke up the biggest love affair between the soul and the body, right? Yeah. That, that, that those two are, are a match made in heaven. <laughs> but, in heaven and earth. In heaven mm-hmm. and earth. Mm-hmm. Which heaven is Very on good. earth. Yeah, yeah. But this, it's, it's the... Beth, the extraordinary thing of the fact that we are cosmic beings with an, with an incarnation here, with this particular planet, which I do not subscribe to the idea that it's just one planet amongst many others. It is an extraordinary planetary being. And we have an extraordinary relationship with her. And, you know, this is one of the great mysteries. Once again, it's been taken away from us. But when you start going along the track of that mystery, it's, it is so exciting to be able to reclaim that at last now. You know, we are in the end game, the end game of the gods, which is also a point where we need to live up to the requirements of our own long game. We've gone along with the experiment of all these religions. We've gone along with all the the torture and the suffering and the, uh, you know, giving them our energy, our money. I mean, they have harvested us in every possible way and we are now in the final sort of, you know, harvest phase. Um, I, uh, I like what, I no, like what we've, about, you know, yeah, we've got other stuff to do. <laughs> Indeed, because the the word end game, that phrase, is almost always attributed to their plan for us, how how they're going to end us. But what you're talking about is their end game, that that the gods are in in their end game. Is that correct? Did I hear hear you? They right? are in, yeah. They, I mean, they are in their end game. It's been a very long game, at least since Mesopotamia. We don't know. I mean, we don't have enough, you know, reasonably reliable data from archaeology and ancient texts. I mean, we don't have ancient texts from earlier than that. So those parts, the earlier parts, can only be intuited basically in contemplation in very you know clean contemplation without pollution of you know the mind our own mind games Mm -hmm. but um it's been it's been a phenomenal sort of you know journey of trial and tribulation for humankind from which 
you know, the, the hero's journey on a whole planetary level, Beth, you know, um, from which we need to extract why the hell we agreed to go along with this and, you know, where we're going once all this, you know, BS is, is uh, let's say, largely neutralized, to put it in polite terms. Um, the, the size, the magnitude, the depth of what we have to reclaim, to rediscover and to re-explore to get back on the track that was interrupted obviously with our permission, but they've overstepped the permission. They have pushed it way too far. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the hubris of their own long game, reaching that end game of theirs. But because there's an end game for them, it's clear to me that there has to be an end game for us, where they come to their end and we come to the end of our tribulations and into a new phase of the discovery of what it is to be human and what is our job down here what are we here to we are not here just to be consumers we're not here just to be consumed by greedy by greedy gods yeah. you know there's okay likewise our planet is not here to be you know polluted and and uh, excavated and raped like she has been you know for so long no what is the goal of all of this? You know, I have my little ideas about this, which I'm not yet ready to talk about, but it's gigantic. It's gigantic what we're here for, which also explains why they have been so intent at harvesting us, killing us, uh, poisoning us, enslaving us, indebting us. They've been so relentlessly efficient at doing this there has to be a bloody good reason for that inside us exactly sometimes people say oh they don't care about us it's like no no they care about us a lot oh, oh yes the opposite they have incredible interest in us that the last thing they're ever going to do is is forget about us and leave us alone they oh, of course they're not right it's, they, they yeah. want what we have mm -hmm. and they cannot you know if they were to go through the very long, long process of what it might take for beings of their nature to perhaps become human souls, I don't know whether that is possible in the order of the universe. In the, in a, you know, in a system of free will, they should be able to go there, but they have to pay the price for it. Okay. Can you say? And more they're about making that? us. They're making us pay the price for them such that we do the work for them, we do the suffering for them, and then they can harvest our souls. <laughs> That's the idea. And what do you see as the price of admission to a human incarnation? I don't know. I'm, I don't know. Don't have um, all the answers. Just kidding. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, that's how can we, plus I'm not even sure we would be able to understand and verbalize it through human uh, cognition and, and human words. You know, how the hell were human souls created or secreted or emanated? I mean, we can't mm -hmm. know that from where we are now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you feel like you will know it at some time? 
it, uh, the, the problem here is the word knowing. We are mainly knowing in the head. That's another thing. They've dissociated our heads from our bodies, from our hearts, from our souls. Most people live only in the head mm -hmm. and have no idea that they live only in the head and thus that they are poisoned, you know, by their little mind as opposed to being their the greater mind, mm -hmm. which higher. is not the higher mind. I don't agree with higher or any, that's hierarchy again. Okay. You know, when you, when you start living with the greater magnitudes of contemplation, the depth of what there is below you is not, there's no less than the depth of what is above you and on the sides of you and on the front of you and on the back of you, you know, in, in spatial terms. And, you know, it's all those dimensions that need to be explored in order to get a sense of what is our greater mind that communes with the reality of this planet and the reality of the cosmos. You know, and these things, they can only be contemplated and felt felt through the other feel, the other sort of, you know, subtle senses that we have lost, but that are still there, they're dormant. We need to, you know, re-recover re them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think subtle is the, is the big word there because that's why they bombard our senses. Yep. With such massive amounts of data and, uh, you know, we're all, especially th three and a half going on four years of pandemic stuff, we're all completely having indigestion from the, you know, massive amounts of information and all kinds of disinformation and, <clears throat> so yeah it is it is quite a process of to to be to turn the senses more inward as a technique and take in less stimulation so that you become subtle like even just the small example of not eating a great deal of of um you know like say sugary foods so that the small amount will will mm -hmm. satisfy and you don't have to blow your senses out and you're nervous system or whatever else is affected there with, you know, and you get the pleasure because you've conditioned yourself to a much more subtle um, reception. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, you've just explained the, you know, one of the major virtues of frugality, you know, frugality doesn't have to be deprivation on the contrary, you know, it's the wealth of the poor people. They eat frugal food. They are way healthier than we are. And they, they, have, they have an ability to sit still for two hours and they're not bored. I mean, there are so many sort of tiny little insignificant things which makes their life multifaceted and, and, and tasty in ways that we've lost, you know, with our modernity um, and our education and our big heads. Uh, but, um, so yeah, yeah, you use the word technique and that's another, that's, that's another very Western thing. When you take a nap, it's not a technique, you just take a nap. So when you are just sitting there, just feeling. There's no technique. Going in for non-techniques, just as a concept, this is revolutionary for us. 
you know, to we do. Yeah, there's all sorts of meditation techniques. Do you do meditation? Um, nope. I just sit and contemplate. But I give it my complete presence. There's no mind distractions. Completely there. So there's no need for techniques. Once again, techniques, they're, I'm not saying that they're bad. You know, techniques are a good stepping stone. But technique, skill, and art, they're related. I mean, you know, in techne, in ancient Greek, is is it's not the technology or it's the ability to do stuff and as humans we are doers of stuff it is normal but when we take a, a rock to hammer something down into the into the ground that is already technique technique okay and then we're going to you know the skill the skill is something that we will develop over time and we turn a techne into possibly an art form but art is also the original uh, root word for artificial so the, it's there is a huge field of exploration between the art that nature creates artificially without artifice I mean you look at a landscape I mean there is no artwork that can come close to it but we have an understanding of art as being, you know, a, a, a deep endpoint of profound skill in a particular technique for painting or for welding or for repairing toilets, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, there again, we're going to anthropomorphize nature, the art of nature, when... She does her art without art, without artifice. It's natural. So there is, there is a very interesting combination of the fact that it is natural to us to do techne and art, whereas it is completely natural to her, to nature. We, we are partly nature and partly something else which has to do with we are here to do stuff on this earth. We're not just here to sit and just be, you know, uh, or just be potato couches or uh, couch potato, sorry, potato couches, couch potato. <laughs> I get that, yeah. yeah. Um, it's true, it's true, right? Like the, people, There's a, a big spiritualism that, oh, we're all a bunch of human doings and, and, and just being, and it's like, no, that's not, it's not quite right. It doesn't match the... You know the things that push up the the inspiration, the the vision, the the you know the willingness when something comes through, and you're like, yeah, that's scary, but I'm willing. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that on, and you know it can be a fine balance because if there's not enough rest and and repair for the body, then that can't go well either. But it's through the doing that the relationships come about that that evolution really happens. You don't, I don't think you evolve when you sit in the cave alone. Uh, no, you're going to, I mean, the cave, in the cave, you're going to, you're going to get great insights, but then you have to bring those insights back into the world and you have to act upon them. You know, who we are must inspire what we do. 
But exactly. who we are is not reduced to what we do, and what we do is, you know, I mean, it's there again. It's the beautiful dance of being and doing. It has to the two have to work together, but we have been conditioned into a society where everything is doing, 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 and we're so afraid of not doing that. You know, we oh, I'm going alone for five minutes. I'm going to be bored. Ah, I'm going to be bored. Fantastic! Give me stars of boredom, please. I'll have. You know, give me, give me a double helping of McDonald boredom. <laughs> um, uh, nothing is boring, you know. But it's we we need to be able to go back to who we are, and that's being. But inhabiting our being, nice. without doing anything with it, and that is going to gradually going to it's going to give the energy to overcome the fear to do, you know, bit by bit what we need to do. Whereas, oh, I've got a fantastic new technique. I'm going to go crazy like the technique and okay. And, you know, then you mentioned rest. And when you, when you progress along this track with doses of being with who you are regularly, small doses, but regularly, it is going to inform the way you do stuff in a way that is congruent with your your levels of energy, your levels of cognition, whatever it is, is there. It's going to go, it's going to grow naturally. Whereas, you know, I found a new technique, yay, you know, and you go overboard with it and, uh, okay, and you break something or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. One of the things that I do in my work is not only to coach people with the archetypes and, uh, and I call tools of deprogramming, but also training coaches to do that as well. That's sponsored by the pandemic. And, and one of the things that I will go out of my way to help them avoid is robotically using techniques and tools. Right. Number one reason is because they don't continue to work. Your system becomes immune to all the tools and the techniques at some point. And I can see there's some, you know, people will be grasping to a certain thing. And if I'm not guiding them in a certain tool that they're expecting, they'll guide themselves in it. And Exactly. And I, but I would, I would rather to um, say something that they're not expecting so that there's some kind of like real opening to yeah. the, oh, pattern interrupt is what I call right. it. Right. And that's, and a, and that's, that's a very great esoteric tool. It's that, you know, something that is going to make a crack in the, in, the, in, the, in the routine mind, in the mind that thinks it is safe by being in that routine and by exactly. automating things. You know, life is, we can be surprised every minute of our lives by the smallest, most insignificant little things as long as, as, long as we're open to noticing it. And to, you know, okay, where is this going to take me? And to follow that particular path and be curious like when we were kids. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Wisdom is also about being like kids. And it's, I mean, yeah, everything. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if one works on the premise that pretty much everything we've been taught and conditioned into is false or it's a distortion of, the rea of reality, you know, it's a good starting point. It really is because then you have to turn, you know, for all the places that you might've gone for your knowledge and wisdom and all that kind of thing, 
you can't anymore because you see it. And that was that was the evolution for me when I started to wake up to the lies and oh, that's a lie and that's a lie and oh, everything's a lie. Okay, good. And where did I immediately turn was inside myself to my relationship with the unnameable and and you know the direct knowledge that requires no no priest no interloper of any kind no one's telling me how this should mean or or you know what results should come from it and that's i think what the controllers are afraid of because i no oh, longer yes. i no longer spiritually answer to them i answer to this relationship that i'm in Exactly. And that's, I mean, you know, that's the source of, that's the source of, well, you know, people say you're so powerful. You can scream you're so powerful to people as long as they haven't had a felt sense of this reality inside themselves and that this reality can express itself in the outer world. You can scream you're powerful as much as you want. It's just going to be a, you know, a, um, a titillating idea in the mind that ultimately is very disempowering because you're not finding that bloody power inside yourself because you don't yeah. know how to find it. But um, the easier, you know, the straightest way to find it is just to sit with yourself. But that means you have to sit with all the discomfort of I'm being bored. My mind wants to keep me safe. Oh, there's so much to do. And, uh, you know, and I'm not doing this right. Oh, I'm not doing this right. Surely something has to happen, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my God, it. we're you so we have been so messed up, Beth. It's extraordinary, but know. you know, the intensity of our messiedupidness, if I may allow myself a, a bit of word word jamming, um, <laughs> means that the opposite is also potentially true. And uh, uh, yeah, we can we can go back, you know, to where we got off track, or we can completely, you know, find a new path to where we're supposed to be going, and that we cannot know in advance. It's um, you know the fact that we have been so trusting that we have agreed to be so victimized. I think. You know, in terms of a hero's journey, uh, I think the honest hero needs to take stock with gratitude of his or her ability to be victimized. The intensity of victimhood that we've been able to take and we haven't become extinct, I think that is a major, major, major thing that we, you know, it's not just a matter of climbing out of victimhood. Let me let's get rid of the victimhood. Let's get rid of all the stuff that hurts us. Um, you know, that's like that's like the disease model. Oh, I want to be rid of doctor. Heal my disease. Well, exactly. no, this disease precisely it's telling you about the life force inside you doing something. And so, you know, when you respect that and you listen to it. Wow, there are all sorts of interesting things that can happen. You discover all sorts of stuff about yourself. And your physicality teaches you stuff about your non-physicality. I mean, it's endless. It's endless. Mm -hmm. But basically, yeah, the hero is not just someone who vanquishes the enemies. It's someone who 
you know, goes to into the snake pit and makes friends with the snakes and, you know, and turns the snakes into allies of human beings. Mm -hmm. Or, exactly. you know, I mean, we take the poison, we take the poison and we alchemize it into into wonderful nectar or honey or what have you nourishment exactly yeah i was going to say that you know say using the the victim archetype as an example to me these are um natural natural creations you can find them outside in nature you can find them inside here in nature and inherently built into every single one of them is what i describe as the door to freedom so mm -hmm. by by trying to do away with the victim, you're actually doing away with power, like the you know, not not the source of power, but but a an expression of power that's already wired inside our hearts, our minds, our psyches, however you want to, whatever anatomy lesson you want there. Uh, I mean, this would be a harder one when I I have to now challenge myself to go see that in nature, but no doubt I would find it because there are universal expressions well everything i mean everything is something else's food in nature so yes. i mean you know there's yeah. no difficult it, on the other hand it's very interesting to watch how victim animals behave as victims you know they are the food for somebody else and you know um yeah, and they don't love it. Like I remember my cat, you know, playing with a half dead mouse. That mouse right. doesn't like it. <laughs> right? It like, doesn't like it, but it. Um, okay, I, that's something you know. I'd need to think about that, observe it some more, and not anthropomorphize it. And I'm not sure that that arrangement is the way it's supposed to be, because ultimately it is. It's a consumptive model, which is pretty cruel. Um, I mean, there is objectively suffering, you know, in in the many in the many victims of many preys. Uh, so I'm not sure that that is essential to the way things should be. It that could be an evolutionary degradation uh, at some point in time. I don't know. I, you know. I'm that is very. I'm very speculative here. But in humans, you know, you look in an abusive relationship. The victim has been programmed. It takes programming to be the victim and to remain the victim, to perpetuate your victim role. But it takes a huge amount of ability to contain the poison of the perpetrator what are you doing here sorry 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 the creatures the creatures are all awake now <laughs> yeah you can tell um, um it takes i mean you know there's a paradox in in being the weak the weak party ultimately the weak party is the strongest the aggressor party the perpetrator party is actually displaying a profound lack of something in his or her need to use somebody else as a victim. So, you know, victimhood has 
you know, there again, the fact that we've been able to put up with so much for so long, and we're still here, and, you know, now that the end game is in our face, well, you know, a bunch of us are actually, <laughs> no, that's not going to worry. That's not going to be the way it's going to work. You know, it's going to it's going to go our way, uh, not your godly way and your priestly way. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. not our creative nature, and that's part of, I think, what they hunger for so much, but don't have. So they they don't have mm -hmm. that. They that's the whole point about this. You know, this there's they do a simulation, and they're putting it in our face right now. Everything, you know. Everything is supposed to be our life here on this planet is a simulation. Worlds, this world is a simulation. They are trying to program us to not believe, not trust anything of what is real reality. And um, and to, you know, by virtualizing everything that is physical, but then the effect of the virtual will still come back to the physical because we are still physical. Consequently, there is this really vicious dance between the real real and the virtual real and vice versa. It's just, it's, ugh. And, <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're really, you know, they're pushing hard. They're pushing hard and... You know, so many in the young generation are completely, you know, lock, stock and barrel into all this virtuality. And, you know, the reality of your body, the reality of this, you know, of this planet. Oh, it's, it, it, it stinks. It sucks. Um, you know, let's get out of here as fast as possible. And let's put on these, you know, VR goggles and live a completely different reality. I mean, cough. I, they really, you know, the masters have really pushed this thing very, very far. But this is where, this is where we are going to reclaim reality, or we're not going to reclaim reality, and we're going to go into their false reality, where they can hijack the essence of who we are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. Potentially, potentially. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so I have just a couple of more for you. All right, there. No, no, there's a cat and with very sharp this cat. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, so I just have a couple of more questions if you still had some time. Sure, uh, sure. One was to talk about the egregores and, uh, oh, darn, what was the second thing that about, mm, yeah, about some people are positing, like, are we, are we right now, given your anthropology background and all of that teaching, which is kind of suspect to tell you the truth and like, you know, how they, did have determined certain, you know, past versions of humanity. But do you think there is a split in the evolution creating two, you know, if there was only one, which you'd have to assume that first, but creating two different kinds of human beings, ones that are going to persevere, not just become prey to the next level. Uh, and, and those that you know, are going to take every injection they're told to, they're going to mask their faces, they're going to uh, sacrifice their babies to the beast. Do you think we're doing a split? Well, that's 
that's the way it looks, you know, and uh, it's debatable whether the people who are going along with the agenda are doing this out of their free will, um, you know, because, oh yes, you'll have spiritualists telling you that, yes, but you've, you already agreed at the soul level. Well, if your soul level is not in conscious dialogue with your incarnation, where is the free will? It's not there. Exactly. I mean, you know, there has to be this continuity with the physical. So you've got all sorts of specious and uh, dubious arguments that come out of the spiritual community, which, you know, it, it doesn't make sense in terms of the whole of what is a human being. The soul, the heart, the mind, the body, the, all the pieces together and working together. If we made soul agreements, but we are not allowed or we do not know how to get access to those agreements in this physicality, um, I don't, you know, I, I don't see that, that it works that way. Consequently, what is going to happen to all the people who go along with the agenda? Um, it's a really tricky question and I've I've avoided it I've avoided it because how can I how can I <laughs> claim to think on behalf of those people uh, you know mm -hmm. are they are they are they one great final human sacrifice? I mean, what an absolutely awful notion. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if you know they are on their particular path, and there is, you know, this is where we, you know, there's the paradox of the fact that we are all one, we are all part of one common oversoul of humankind. Consequently, another human, whatever the other human, is another one, you know, he's my brother or sister. But at the same time, we are also individuals and individualizing as souls. And the more we individualize the paradox is the more we feel the collective soul of humankind. Mm, so, you know, how... How does this work? I well, we'll we'll find out, you know, in terms of this bifurcation. I imagine there have been many bifurcations already because humans or humanoids, they don't only live on Earth. I think there is a certain portion of the human souls who have made a commitment to this place and to this partnership with this particular planet. Mm -hmm. And others who've gone, you know, and they have built civilizations in, in other places. And, you know, ultimately we all come from the same source, but we've, we have taken objectively different paths. The, you know, if there are all these bifurcations, I like to look forward to the fact that one day we'll have one great family reunion. <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> I see it in my own vision, you know, and I, I often have the conclusion that I wouldn't have that vision if it were false. You know, that there's... Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's a vision down here, 
and not just up here. If it's up here, mm-hmm. no, one always has to. We Western people, we have to challenge everything that we have up here. This, I mean, this is spiritual, uh, you know, whole human hygiene. <laughs> nice. I mean, all the thoughts that I have up here, I put to the test down here. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, this is, it's the simplest way. It's the simp- that is simply a technique that is virtually a non-technique to, um, to really simplify, you know, to get rid of the complications of life so that one is more open and more amenable to perceive and savor the complexity of life as opposed to the complications. They've created all those nasty complications, you know, for us to wade through or get bogged down in. Whereas in fact, you know, life such as, you know, what we have with nature, God, I mean, the, the complication, the complication is not there. It's the complexity that is there. And she does it, you know, with, with like, yeah, what's the problem? You know, Exactly. Oh, that's a beautiful distinction. I'm totally going to use that now, Anna. So um, we are coming up to the second hour, but I, I did have egregores to talk about, and that relates to the collectivism as well of, of the human consciousness, if I'm correct in that. What would you like to share with us about that? Egregores, wait a minute, collectivism, that's a dangerous word. I mean, the collective consciousness, pardon me. Yeah, okay. I mean, collectivism is... Uh, it's- Different. It's part of something that most people don't understand and, uh, and yeah, consequently, you know, go green in the face about. Um, so, uh, collective, an egregore, it can be created by just one individual. You know, if you're a big enough magician and you can muster enough of that energy, you're going to create an egregore. Then you're going to need followers to help you feed the egregore. So that the egregore start the egregore starts serving you. But you know, egregore is generally used, I think, you know, in the in, in the sense of a, a negative being out there. Mm-hmm. But I think we can generate our own positive egregore or you know insurgency and counterinsurgency, intelligence, counterintelligence. So you know, yeah. egregore's thought forms. Thought form is a bit weak. You know, it's true that Egregore has a bit more muscle. It does. Yeah, Matt's joking, saying Matt Unseated is his favorite Egregore, giving credence to what you just said. Uh, same thing with the King Hero's journey. To my knowledge, there never was a King Hero. It was it was something that came to me, and I it was my best way to describe the meaning that I held inside myself and, and uh-huh. the, the King Heroes I wanted to, you know, rise up. And it's become something, people use that word with me now, that phrase. They'll talk about the King Heroes like it's a it's a thing, but it wasn't a thing until it came to me, you know, so it's a very fun game. And and it's like you're saying, not inherently negative or positive, right? It's it's dependent on your motive, I assume. Uh, we're talking about egregores? The new words. Okay, egregore. Okay. Um what we can create, and I think many of us are creating positive egregores or, you know, loving egregores or constructive egregores. Um, you know, we just keep, we need to keep feeding them. 
that's the other thing. You know, we must not be lazy. And a lot of people don't realize that there is real work that we need to do in the subtle, in the subtle realms. And when we do real work in the subtle realms, we know that we've really done it because just when we come out of doing that work, it is exhausting. We have actually given a lot of energy and it has taken some energy from our physicality. But then, very soon, it's going to come back as, as more energy to us. That's I find, you know, okay, mm -hmm. whenever I've done something real, okay, I've been, you know, putting something out there. And it doesn't need, need to be, you know, it doesn't need to take two hours. Ten minutes of intense dedication, presence, to feeding that, you know, positive intention or whatever it, one wants it to be. I come out of those 10 minutes feeling like completely groggy, but within the 10 next minutes, okay, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm my normal self again and, and I have more energy. But just, just after the, after doing it, there is, you know, one realizes that it really is, it's real work. It is real work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, intangible, though, intangible though it may be, and so you know, if one is does not have that little slump of tiredness, well, perhaps one be, one has been you know building a counter egregore from up here and not with the, the energy of the whole human. Interesting, interesting, very good. Well, fascinating work that you've uh, come into. Thank you so much for sharing your work with the world that would receive it. Thank you so much for being here. Is there anything that you want to share more with us before well, we Beth, I want to I want to thank you. I mean somehow you ask questions that make me say things I had never yet said. Or <laughs> not even yet thought. Not even yet thought. That's what I love. You know, I live here completely in human terms, in intellectual terms, you know, isolated. I mainly talk to my cats. And, you know, with the humans, perhaps three minutes per day maximum. And so, you know, okay, I, I am, I've gone native out here, but there's a part of me that likes to have these conversations with, uh, you know, with, with other people. And I'm, you know, thank you. Thank you to the internet for this. And, uh, you know, and thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to to meet with you and to um, and to have these these points of of connection and occasional divergence where we come back into into you know coherence very interesting conversation and a great example of the work that requires some effort and some attention and i might be a little just like laying on my chair after and then it's going to come it's going to come with a, a wave and I yeah. want you to let, I want you to know that you can call me anytime <laughs> if you want to talk. I can call you anytime to talk. Ooh, your timetable says one o'clock or 3.45. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. My, my timetable, I'm, uh, I'm kind of stingy with it these days, but, um, but you're special. So then call me anytime. <laughs> you won't need an appointment. Anyway. Thanks a lot, Beth. It's been it's been it's been very very interesting. And uh, well, once you've dug further into Krivda, you know you may want to have another 
exactly, exactly. another revisit because it's mm -hmm. uh you know, my my desire for, for all those, for the readers who are prepared to go through this, it is also an emotional journey, you know, into this whole victimhood of ours. And I understand it to, you know, for me, it has been cathartic. I can't tell you the buckets of tears that I, that I, that I, I, I spilt mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. during, you know, when I was writing it. But I came out of it, you know, my, I, I, I came into myself and I started to really feel what it is to be, what it, it can be to be the reassociated whole human being. So, you know, my, my wish is for others to go through that not very nice phase. And, uh, you know, some people say, oh, you know, I got it in my gut, received it in my gut, and oh, it was totally heart shattered good you know uh not that i want to hurt you but if we are to come back into who we really are we have to know you know it's not the doctor that has to know our disease for us we have to know what has been poisoning us and we have to really realize to what extent we've been we've been enslaved and effed over um i mean it's it, it's mind-boggling, but once one goes through that tunnel, one realizes that one does not need the fear anymore. I mean, so many things become clear, and the fear, the need for the fear goes away. The need for all sorts of stuff goes away, and, you know, then it becomes much simpler to, to find one's own path. Mm, beautiful. I want to make sure to remind people that uh, you can get, and I'll just make myself big for a second to show your book a little bit bigger. So you, I, I got this copy off of Amazon. Is there other places that you prefer people to purchase? You can it get it. You can get it wherever is convenient for you. I mean, you know, different people in different parts of the world, uh, whatever. And then there are people who don't like Amazon. For people in America, if you mm -hmm. want to support the author, you can go straight to the publisher called Book Baby, which is they support indie writers, and so you know they give better um, what's it called copyright royalties, right? But you know it's it's you know whatever is convenient the, these days with you know the transport issues and postage issues and cost issues, you know whatever is convenient for for you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, within within North America, at any rate, you know, Book Baby, it's print on demand. It's very quick, very efficient, and uh, and uh, I mean, no extra cost to to you compared to Amazon. There you go. Very good. Yeah, I used to print my CDs with uh, CD Baby. I believe that's the same company there. Right. It's the same yeah. company. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Well, it's been fantastic. You could also go and subscribe to Enna's writing at enna.substack.com. That's the main way that uh, you can contact her. And when I finish reading your book, I'm definitely going to be, have more topics I think that we should talk about. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would love to, if you're open to it, if I can get it to, I'd love to send you a copy of my book as well. And this sure. is the, the Archetypes of the Hero's Journey. I published this just before everything went crazy in 2020 which was good ah. timing. 
And that's my first book. And you know, we'll see if there's, I certainly have more in, in me, but uh, they're monumental productions. So we'll see how that goes. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Monumental cool. productions. I, 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 the one I'm on to now is just, you know, so let's, we should establish the club of monumental projects. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Have a support group for that. Yeah. And can I put the link in the comments to, uh, to Anna's Substack? Sure. I, I definitely can. We'll go with, um, um, I'll just copy that. And if people want to write, um, you know, uh, privately, there's a contact form on my tiny website, which is enaretort.info. Okay, give me a second, and I'm going to put that in the chat as well. So, oh, no, it doesn't let me, it doesn't let me, now that they killed YouTube, it doesn't let me chat on my own StreamYard, so darn it. Um, so, James, I will come and drop that in, in Facebook after. And then, um, yeah, I will definitely get that to you. Perhaps I, perhaps I can stick it in the comments. Maybe you can comment. I can't comment. I can comment uh, over here. Uh, on. Um... Oh no. No, it won't work. No, it won't work for me. Oh, that's I don't awesome. have. I don't have a YouTube. All right. So you can just open a browser and type in Enna E N N A dot substack.com i'm going to share this on x come over to x it's like not perfect and you know the panacea but it is at least for the time being uncensored and so we can have open discussions there i'm live streaming all of my interviews there as well so you can find me i can't share the link that's so annoying i'll find i'll have to find a workaround for that but um uh, mm. Thank you everyone for coming and uh, lovely to see you guys over on Rockfin. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad people are finding me over there. And I think that's, oh, I want to make sure you guys know that I'm having Mr. Matt Unseated. I, that's how I know him right now, his egregore of Matt Unseated. He's going to be on, on Monday talking about the archetypes of Controlled Op, my little series that I've had going. I actually just published at my website for people, uh, it, it's not, you can't find it. It You'll have to give me, you know, send me your email address and let me know you want the list of so far, so far it's 24 signs of controlled op. There's almost endless ones. If you have more, anybody out there, you want to send them to me, I will add them to the list. It's really good to know those patterns. I'm a pattern hunter. And when you know patterns, then you can interrupt patterns for yourself and not have to be so infected in that. So that's, um, that's on the... The plate right now and then matt is on the 15th at i believe uh 1 30 in the afternoon central time so i'll see you guys back here thanks again and it's been fabulous and uh, a sheer pleasure to speak with you today um same here so have a lovely night exactly yeah, because I'm coming into a lovely day. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Now you're fully light. I like how how that you went from being in the dark to being in the light. <laughs> so anyway, lovely, and um, you know, keep up the great work without YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all right. I'll go cry in my soup a little bit. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It's been been it's been fantastic, and. Um, Bye for now.